This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlquist. I'm Brian Kotick. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. And together, the three of us, we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1%, where in the world are you, Brian? <laughs> Not in London. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, I'm, I'm in Dubai. Actually, I'm not even in Dubai. I'm in the free zone of the DIFC, which we <gasps> are equally interested in this podcast. Of course. Rewind a few episodes ago. Um, where in the world are you, Joel? I am at home. In London, nothing has changed. Where are you, Sadia? I'm in London. Has changed, I guess. I'm not in Cambridge. I'm working from uh, the office. Baby uh, steps, slowly but surely. Yeah, but I do exactly. have to tell you guys that it is a totally different city than I visited eight years ago here. It's completely developed. There's like three to four different skylines. There's monuments. There's things that Copenhagen has in their entire city they have in one square block here so it's just it's um it's completely developed we were i was getting ready and waiting in the lobby and um just listening to people talk about business and how it's booming and how everyone's excited to come here and um people were from flying in from all over you just heard different you know languages and and accents and nationalities just oh, saying how they're more, coming here more to do business masks or no masks oh masks outside and in the public you have to wear a mask but um the the everything else is is open so once you're inside and sat down you're able to to live life freely but um, it's also 30 degrees. I mean, what more do I want to say about it? Oh, it's just, that's are, you, are you mostly slash exclusively conducting business or are you also going to Dubai Arbitration Week events or like networking more? And yes, it is also Dubai Arbitration Week. I, as you do when you also have work, you have the ambition that you'll be able to sneak away, but uh, have not been able to go yet, except there is a funder tomorrow morning doing a breakfast. So we're going to try and um, go there as part of Dubai Arbitration Week. I believe that they're um, discussing not just funding cases, but just kind of a business trends um, of the of the types of cases that they're funding. So I think it will mm -hmm. expand for beyond what like the funding arrangement is um, technically, but more just about the business. Um, but it is. There's a lot of people here. And it's also Dubai Expo 2020, which is basically booths of every different country has a booth on innovation or technology or medicine. And so um, 
every hotel is booked out. It's it's like I'm here at the Olympics of business. <laughs> uh, but wow, it's exciting. Incredible. It feels like the world is back, you know? Yeah, feels alive again, I'm sure. A glimmer yes. of hope. We had a glimmer of hope, Sadia and I, as you were busy doing something else probably last week, Sadia and I also went to our first, my first event in person, as I think I hinted at last time we recorded. Sadia was also there and it was a good talk, uh, but even more so, there was some actual real life in-person happy fun time afterwards at the cocktail buffet, I guess. <laughs> that sweet spot of conversation and a glass of wine. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Just before you logged on, Brian, we were discussing that, how, how that was, it was like the perfect party. It was Honored and Porter and the Lauchtepak Center that arranged it. And for both, both Sadia and myself, it was like a good party where you have you know, a, a core of people that you already know, mm-hmm. a group of people that you kind of know, and also a group of people that you don't know, but kind of want to get to know. Yeah. That we're all you just mixing. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good Gosh, crowd. Gosh, that's the perfect mix. It was. It was a good crowd. It was great. I can tell you. We can tell. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit more in our in our happy fun yeah. time section. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Should we do so a cool. reverse introduction of this? That's a really good. Yes. Let's do that. So, so we will end this this episode with a happy fun time that I, I would like to call "Who is going to scan Brian's QR code on his new business card?" But that's anyway. not a. <laughs> <laughs> But we, let's call it post-COVID networking or post-COVID something. networking. Yeah. 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 As always, That's we'll see what it is once we get there. That's the whole point of the happy fun time segment. And then I think we have an interview as the middle segment, right? If we go backwards. Yes, we have an interview with James Clanchy, who is a full-time arbitrator in London and also a secretary of the LMAA. You might wonder what the LMAA stands for. Well, stay tuned. You will see. Ooh, really hangers. Yeah, we've talked about it before, but not enough. Um, and so it'd be really interesting to hear his views on, in particular, ad hoc versus institutional arbitration. Where he takes the unconventional viewpoint <laughs> of supporting ad hoc arbitration and realizing that we don't know much about it. Hmm. That's true. That's true. So stay tuned and you will hear some more uh, of his really interesting views on this. Yeah. And then, uh, sorry, I feel like I keep talking, but the first segment is actually um, me going to present on two things that we talk about as a lawyer all the time. And I don't think we've done a segment on this before. So I think it's high time. Burden of proof and standard of proof. Mm-hmm. Two different things. I love it. I love it. From even as a student, that was always something you would forget. As a moody, that's always something you forget. But as a practicing lawyer, that's the one thing you do not forget. (laughs) Um, Yeah, literally. Not a day that goes by without us talking about it, right? I think Mm -hmm. so. So there you go. Mm, Looking forward to this. We we had some reader. I was going to say, no, that's not the right word. My English is slowly listener just yeah that's the word listener oh yeah. yeah listener feedback uh some anonymous i just wanted to mention because i've been thinking about this a lot about the the dubai segment that that mm. we sadia did mostly and about how institutions expand and as always you know, we we wing things a little bit and there were not so much criticism but some added wrinkles to this discussion about institutions going abroad one that this um, listener pointed out was that most arbitration institutions are actually not for profit. They Mm -hmm. don't make money. 
you know, we were talking or speculating, really guessing about whether or not you could have a treaty claim and whether or not it's an yeah. investment and lost profits, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Very good point. Given that most arbitral institutions actually do not make a profit, even like a loss for profit argument would probably fail. And also it's doubtful if you have an investment in that kind of scenario mm-hmm. where yeah. you're not there to make money. And secondly, in that context as well, the this very same loyal listener pointed out that it's common that you have institutions doing this joint venture approach, which is now risky. And that's kind of what we talked about with, uh, with the LCIA in Dubai. It didn't really work out. I think the way that the LCIA had planned, it's fair to say, but you have, of course, the other option as well of expanding organically the way some institutions, most notably the ICC has tried where you like set up your own branch office. There are a number of ICCs outside of Paris. They have local offices and this listener pointed out that we may have a discussion now or a new uh, chapter in this discussion about expanding organically versus as a joint venture. And it made me think a lot about the nature of institutional work and arbitral institutions. I think there's some research here. It's been a year or two since I gave someone a, a, a cue on what to write a book about or a master thesis or something. That's a great idea. I think there is a difference. And I think that the, well, especially if you're entering it as a joint venture, clearly there's an aim of some sort of profit or competing interests that you maybe can't reconcile versus when you expand naturally. Um, and when there's actually a demand for it and you're just filling, filling it from a different angle. But wait, um, just to confirm, so the ICC not, is not for profit? Just so. No. And. Okay. I'm, I'm sure we can discuss more if we knew more about the exact arrangement. But I mean, the ICC court was created to promote international commerce, even okay. maybe peace, peace and commerce. Yeah, I yeah. think. And you know, it's part of the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, I don't think they turn a profit. I think under their like foundational or instruments, they're not supposed to do that. The same with the SEC and many others. Really interesting. I don't know if, if a lot of our listeners knew that. So that's uh, that's a really interesting comment. Thank you, dear listener. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had more more feedback, but I'm worried that my internet is unstable. So I think maybe we should have the Sadia Bati lecture. Sure. Shall we move forward? Yes. Actuary incumbent honors probandi. Are you listening, guys? I'm speaking Latin. For those who criticize my Latin accent, oh, yeah. you may you may do so. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> that, um, what I just said was the basic rule regarding the burden of proof in international law, which is fill in the blanks, either of you, that the party who makes an assertion must prove it wow you need to wake up you're too this bad is I like... mean, that's, that's in anything not just arbitration <laughs> that's true sorry it's not just in arbitration and it's it's the basic rule regarding the burden of proof in international law if i said arbitration i i meant international law, international um, law. it's even in, in in national law uh and although or maybe because this principle is applied nearly universally uh, not all arbitration rules, because that's what we're talking about here, included. So um, by way of example, the uncentral arbitration rules and the Iran-US claims tribunal rules of procedure 
which are also based on the ancestral rules, directly state that every party shall have the burden of proving the facts relied on to support his claim or defense. Uh, now, uh, there are some like basic exceptions. Um, if you know you don't have to prove something that is obvious or notorious, uh, but let me ask you a question. Can a party say, oh, I can't prove it because it's too difficult to prove? Yes. Yeah? It happens all the time. No? And you can say it, but what's the result of that uh, uh, claim or allegation or position? Well, ob- obviously, it will be dependent on how close they can get to proving it, if they can like corner it with circumstantial evidence. But if they cannot prove it, and let's say it's a defense of something they're trying to say, then you have an adverse inference of why they couldn't prove it. But if they couldn't prove it, and it's just a basic element of fact that they're trying to prove, then it's basically considered not a fact in the case. Well, tribunals have noted that the rule regarding burden of proof would apply even in situations where the documentary evidence will pose enormous difficulties. So, for example... In Al-Bahul versus Tajikistan, the tribunal noted that claimant has represented to the tribunal that extensive efforts were made to obtain further documentary evidence in support of his case, but were not successful since such evidence is located in Tajikistan, where claimant and his representatives no longer have access to it. While the tribunal can understand that currently claimant may have no or very limited access to documents in Tajikistan, Tajikistan, gosh, <laughs> this does not allow the tribunal to make far-reaching assumptions to the detriment of respondent. So you can maybe make adverse inferences to a certain degree, but not if it's just difficult to get this, you know, the, the evidence. It's, you need to have something else, I would say. Absolutely. So it's not a sufficient defense. Similarly, you have in Lao Holdings versus Lao uh, the, the Lao People's Democratic Republic, the tribunal noted that uh, whereas here the claimant's case is based on inferences of fact and circumstantial evidence, a tribunal must be careful not to shift the onus of proof from the claimant to the respondent government or to bend over backwards to region inferences against the sovereign state that are simply not justified in the context of the whole case. So you're almost right. So I didn't pass the burden of proof on answering your <laughs> question, is what you're saying. Okay, what if I say, hey, the other party actually has access to the evidence, so it should be the one who produces the evidence and not me. What about that? Mm, well, don't you first go and ask the tribunal to order the other party to produce the evidence so that you can get the evidence in order to back up your assertion? Mm-hmm. Very good point. But that's not, that, that's not, you're not really uh, shifting the burden of proof if you do that, right? You're just ask, asking for documents. Yeah. In your, in I'm just trying to be practical but, yeah. here. I hate doing this with two academics and never think practically about things. That's always me who has to be the, the practically <laughs> No, no, but that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Uh, Brian, but, did you want to say something? But theoretically, you're right. I mean, if you're saying that there's a the existence of a contract, for example, and you don't have the contract, and then they, you're saying that the other side does have it, they don't produce it, then obviously 
again, I'm saying adverse inference, but there is an adverse inference if they're not able to produce the document, if it's if they can prove that it does exist and it was within their control. But if it if they can't prove that, then you really haven't satisfied your burden. Yes. So you can always take adverse inferences. That's true. But it's it still is your burden to prove something, right? You right. can't really shift the burden. So tribunals have refused to move the burden or prove to the other party, even if there are allegations to that effect that the party in a better position to deal with the evidence must produce. So, for example, in the annulment committee in Azarix versus Argentina, um, the, it's interesting because Argentina refers to what it claims is, quote, a general principle of law that the party that is in a better position to prove a fact bears the burden of proof. To which the committee said, the committee does not accept that such general principle exists in exit proceedings. To the contrary, the committee considers the general principle in exit proceedings and in international adjudication generally to be that who asserts must prove, and mm. that in order to do so, the party which asserts must, must itself obtain and present the necessary evidence in order to prove what it asserts. Other question now. The other side is not present to the arbitral proceedings, so I don't have to discharge my burden of proof. Lies. I know what Brian's going to say. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's <laughs> not true, obviously. You always have. I've been, well, I was working at the SEC when that happened, and it was clear that you still have the burden of proof. That's absolutely right. So both the exit arbitration rules, Rule 42, and uncertain arbitration rules, Article 3, uncertain, sorry, uh, contemplate party default. In particular, if the respondent has failed to submit its response to the notice of arbitration or has not taken part in the proceedings, the tribunal shall not treat this failure as an admission of the claimant's allegation. And that's really important because what is the role of the arbitration uh, of the arbitrators and the institution in that sense? Because they basically have to rule the case without a party um and you that that is when the burden of proof really comes into play because if you're mm -hmm. you really have to satisfy satisfy and prove to the satisfaction of the tribunal that that such facts exist um and they have to be and they're incontrovertible so you 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 know you have to prove them to to a degree of certainty that's right. And that's the perfect segue for what is the difference between burden of proof and standard of proof? Mm -hmm. Anyone, guys? Well, the burden is with the party and yeah. the standard is the level of proof required to establish. That's right. And we were just having a conversation in the team about this earlier. And Rupert E. Reese, who's a partner I work with, said, well, imagine a game of tennis. Burden of proof is who has to hit the ball. And standard of proof is how high the net is. I thought that was oh, pretty that, cool. That's a good one. Yeah. That's actually very good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell him I quoted him on this. <laughs> <laughs> and so standard of proof is defined in, um, it, we, we just, we just said what it was, but you know, you can define it as to determine whether the evidence a party has produced in support of its factual allegation is sufficient to establish the facts in question. Um, in Rome Petrol versus Romania, the tribunal said um, that the, you know, they, they spelled out difference saying the burden of proof defines which party has to prove what in order for its case to prevail. The standard of proof defines how much evidence is needed to establish either an individual issue or the party's case as a whole. As soon as the distinction is stated in that way, it becomes evident that the burden of proof is absolute, whereas the standard of proof is relative. 
Now, there's been a question that has been asked often is whether the question of what standard is applicable is a substantive question or a procedural question. Uh, now, first of all, why, why is that question even matter? <laughs> is that a theoretical question or why does that matter? Because of the applicable law. Exactly. So substantive question, applicable law would be the governing law of the contract. Procedural question would normally be the rules applicable to the seat of arbitration. Am I correct, uh, Professor uh, Dalquist? <laughs> yes? I, I appreciate the, the promotion. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Um, Interestingly, so uh, Jeffrey Weinsheimer, is that, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, said that common law legal systems treat this issue as procedural, so the standard burden of proof, mm -hmm. while civilian systems see it as substantive. So the, here you can see the civil common law divide coming up. In ICSID arbitrations, however, uh, there's no arbitral seat. Uh, and therefore, the question of whether the standard of proof is substantive or procedural is not really uh, relevant. Um, now, in terms of the different standards of proof in international arbitration, because I could speak about this for an Wait, hour. Sorry, but we only have I just yeah, I yeah, go ahead, go through, ahead. So I didn't interrupt you fast enough. But with ICSID and the grounds for annulment, wouldn't it be quite relevant, whether it was procedural or substantive? Well, in fact, so there was a, um, the annulment committee, for example, in continental casualty versus Argentina noted that the ICSIN convention and the arbitration rules contain no provisions with respect to the burden proof or standard of proof. Accordingly, there cannot be any requirement that a tribunal expressly apply a particular burden or standard of proof in determining the dispute before it. Uh -huh. Indeed. The tribunal is not obliged expressly to articulate any specific burden or standard of proof and to analyze the evidence in those terms, as opposed simply to making findings of fact on the basis of the evidence before it. And also, you know, in ICSID, the convention is both the applicable law to the substance, typically, and the lex That's arbitri right. instead of um, a domestic arbitration law. So that kind of distinction doesn't really apply in ICSID cases either. Mm. Mm. Well, I, but if you're if you're in a case and the award comes out and they've placed the burden of proof on someone, if they've shifted the burden of proof, for example, if they if an allegation of corruption and everyone knows that if you've presented, a, you know, a prima facie case on corruption, then it, the burden of proof shifts. And if they've shifted the burden unnecessarily or inappropriately, would that be a ground for annulment? Mm, manifest excess of powers. Of powers, the yeah. It was just standard like catch-all category, right? Well, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, I guess. If, but if you said that, it, you know, there is no rule, and that's really not a question; it's just a matter of fact. Then it wouldn't be something that you could really. Yeah, I doubt that could be qualified as a manifest excess of powers. Yeah, might, I, I would be. And corrected. Instinctively, I would think it's hard to get an award annulled on that, even though, you know, it, it doesn't feel right. But the Exit Convention Article Fifty Two is kind of right narrow okay sorry sidebar go ahead no no really interesting <laughs> um, different standards of proof can you cite one each brian just gave one yeah you did talking about corruption 
mm-hmm. which which is the standard of proof applicable to corruption? Is it low? Is it middle? Look at the the net I was talking about. Is it like it's more Latin, you're, right? You're, you have your racket, and you have to say corruption. Are you gonna hit the ball at a low let, middle let, high? For the party asserting corruption, I would say yeah. it's a low net to establish a prima facie case, but that does not mean it's proven. It then shifts. But I don't know if that answers your question. Well, actually, for matters that are quasi-criminal nature and are allegations of wrongdoing, such as bribery, corruption, fraud, party, other such allegations, no, it's the heightened standard of proof. Uh-huh. So the standard is higher than uh, the standard of balance of probabilities, which I'm going to be speaking about also, um, but it's lower than the criminal law standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt. Gotcha. Yeah, so it would be the heightened. Um, Can I, b- before, if no, Sadia started with the highest, and I guess we're working our way. I did, I yeah. did, I did start with how, the highest. How do we yeah. feel about quantifying standards of proof with numbers? I know people do that talking to clients sometimes or like colloquially, you know, if beyond a reasonable doubt is 90% and prima facie is 51% or balance of probabilities is maybe 51%. How do you feel about talking like that using those phrases um i never use numbers like oh yes no actually this is uh, this is a lie that's not true we do do use those numbers to quantify claims um yeah i'm not sure so the the highest standard what would it be what would you say it would be like 80 percent? they usually say yeah beyond reasonable doubt is nine ninety about that's usually yeah, the figure I've heard thrown around. More than, than. Um, the problem about proving corruption is how do you show that there's been a, a briefcase with money in it, right? That's always the, the thing that, that people talk about. Uh, so, for example, in um, ECA project management um, against the Czech Republic, the investor uh, alleged that the state sought a bribe but was not able to offer any direct evidence. It further alleged that the local entity had, quote, close links with local politicians and then argued general levels of corruption in the Czech Republic. And the tribunal refused to make any finding of corruption, noting that, and I quote, the tribunal must begin by stating that it finds to be deeply unattractive an argument to the effect that everyone knows that Czech Republic is corrupt. Therefore, there was corruption in this case. The tribunal acknowledged that some effort was made to adduce specific evidence of corruption, but it did feel that there was a strain of the everyone knows argument in the overall case. Um, and I, I skip uh, the extract, but the tribunal remains vigilant against blanket condemnatory allegations, which can have the appearance of an attempt to poison the well in the hopes of making up for a lack of direct proof references to other instances of alleged corruption may prove that corruption exists in the state but it does little to advance the argument that corruption existed in the specific events giving rise to the claim mm-hmm. so we have i mean this this is mikola too written all over it because if yeah. you guys know anything <laughs> about mikola too it was proving a black market which is almost impossible to do right they- right amount of experts that were had to be brought into the case to say not only is this what happens in Romania, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. or you can smell it from the street when they're making this moonshine. These types of arguments didn't 
fly and uh, yeah. we find that out in the award it just wasn't enough and obviously um, you can get it on the enforcement side that you know a state has to exercise a certain amount of due diligence in enforcing its laws but how do you prove letting someone not let it basically not enforcing your laws how do you prove that without proving criminality mm-hmm. and it didn't yeah, work <laughs> It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Others, uh, other things that you need to prove um, that are subject to the heightened standard uh, is illegality of the investment, uh, breach of good faith, allegations of forgery, claims for lost profit also. Claims for lost profit. Yeah. Um, And, you know, also there are situations where the arbitration rules, like the exit arbitration rule, refers to manifest. I believe, Brian, you used that term exactly when we were talking uh, before. Um, and when there is the use of the term manifest, uh, tribunals emphasize this call for a heightened standard. For example, when we're challenging an arbitrator, you know, you need to prove manifest lack of certain types of qualities or also... Uh, when you want to make a preliminary motion to dismiss a case, then you have to show that it's manifestly without legal merit. And here I'm referring to arbitration rule, exit arbitration rule 41.5. Now I started with the highest standard. What's the middle standard? I mentioned it earlier, balance of probabilities, also known as the preponderance of evidence. And some French people some doctrinal, uh, you know, some doctrine or some professors say that the French refer to this as le l'intime conviction. In English, inner conviction test. So, with respect to the balance of probabilities, first, uh, the standard requires an evaluation of all the evidence produced by both parties on a particular issue. And this evaluation would ultimately result in the tribunal determining which party's evidence was more likely than not to be true. So how much percent did you say you would say for this, Joel? Uh, I was just saying 51, basically, if we're being, if we're simplifying things to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah. So it typically applies as the default rule in investor state arbitration. It extends to a wide range of issues such as claim for damages, allegations of breach of contract, interpretation issues, factual controversies, breaches of standard of protection, um, et cetera, um, et cetera. Um, now, interestingly, on what I just mentioned before in the Antim Commission, uh, Vera Van Hoot uh, wrote, um, None of the above-mentioned rules for international arbitration fix the standard of proof, however. The required standard of proof is often expressed by international arbitrators in terms of the jurisdictions from which they come. Whereas civil lawyers generally use the concept of the intime conviction of the arbitrator, common lawyers talk in terms of a preponderance of the evidence or balance of probability. However, in practice, the result is the same. So, you know, that's, um, that's interesting um, that, you know, some people consider that it's a bit higher, some consider that it's a bit lower. Um, that's, um, that, that's an interesting question. With respect to the standard of proof to apply at the damages phase, um, the tribunal in Crystal X versus Venezuela summarized the standard of proof at the damage phase as follows. Um, first, the fact 
of the damage needs to be proven with certainty. In that sense, there's no reason to apply any different standard of proof than that which is applied to any other issues of merits. Second, once the fact of damage has been established, a claimant should not be required to prove its exact quantification with the same degree of certainty. This is because any future damage is inherently difficult to prove. And as the tribunal in Lemire, Ukraine observed, once causation has been established and has been proven that the bonus party has indeed suffered a loss, less certainty is required in proof of the actual amount of damage. Um, the tribunal is of view that the emphasis should be put on the phrase with reasonable confidence, which seems to strike a wholesome and pragmatic approach prone to satisfy common law and civil law minds. So that's interesting as well with respect to how do you prove uh, the damages and then the exact quantification of the damages. Now, uh, just to go back to what is the lowest standard of proof? And you, I think, Joel, you mentioned it already. Prima facie. Yeah, prima facie evidence standard. So the standards involve examination of the facts as alleged by the claimant to see whether such facts would amount to breach of the treaty and otherwise fall within you know, for example, the jurisdiction of the tribunal. So it's typically at the jurisdictional phase of the case. Um, the rule will not apply to factual matters that relate to a tribunal's jurisdiction itself, but it will also apply in preliminary screening activities. So such as references to competent authorities or preliminary review by exit secretary general, mm, because yeah. the tribunal can subsequently apply the appropriate standard after. And, and the same basic logic applies to interim measures as well, I think, where that is typically the standard. You have to prove that's that you right. have a prima facie that's... case. And that's because, the, especially if it's an emergency arbitration, the, the tribunal can then change things later on. But the tribunal, if it's an interim measure requested from exactly. a tribunal, the tribunal can also reverse its decision. It's, it's basically a, a rebuttable presumption in those contexts. That's absolutely right. Well, I think that's it, guys. I think I've given you uh, the core um, different standards and, uh, and you know, bite size of what the burden of proof is. This has been really helpful. Amazing. <laughs> I think it, I mean, it, it seems clear cut when you, when you present it as such, but I think it can get very hairy um, when people start, charting, start trying to shift it, and et cetera. Yes, always debating who has the burden of proof. There's not one pleading that goes without it, right? Exactly. I would like just to remind the tribunal that the claimant bears the burden of <laughs> the burden of proof <laughs> shifts to the other side when yada 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 so anyway. mm -hmm. thanks for listening guys We have a very special guest with you today, uh, with with us today. Sorry, uh, can you introduce yourself, mystery guest? Well, thank you. I'm James Clanchy. I'm an independent arbitrator. I'm an associate member of Six Pump Court Chambers in London, and I also work part time for Lexis Nexus in the UK on its Lexis PSL arbitration practical guidance module. And my background as a lawyer is in shipping, energy and commodities. I was a solicitor in private practice for more than 20 years. And I was an avocat at the Paris bar for some years. I practiced in Paris for four years. 
and I was the Registrar and Deputy Director General of the LCIA in London for four years. I'm now currently privileged to be the Honorary Secretary of the LMAA, the London Maritime Arbitrators Association. And I practice as an LMA arbitrator, but also take cases in other areas. So I should just make a disclaimer, which is that the views that I express in this podcast are entirely my own and not necessarily those of any organization with which I am or have been associated. And we echo those disclaimers for ourselves, don't we, Sonny? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, take part in this podcast. Thanks a lot, James. Pleasure. And uh, so uh, very privileged to have someone who's ex-LCIA and now LMAA. That's a lot of L's. Uh, so you are based in London, correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, but that is indeed a lot of L's. And I've got quite a lot of L's in my, in my practice uh, generally. When I was at the... LCIA, it was at a time when it was growing quite considerably. And this was partly on the back of big efforts that had been made to promote it uh, internationally. And it had been discussed at one point that in order to improve its international credentials, perhaps it should drop at L, uh, that London might fix it too closely to, to the UK. But it was noted that if you remove the L from LCIA, you would end up with a, a set of three letters which already represented another organization with international reach, which was not uh, regarded with great favor in some of the LCA's target markets. Right. And, and what about the, I mean, the LCIA, so the London Court of International Arbitration, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. Um, what about the LMAA? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I'm not sure people are so familiar with the LMAA. What does it stand for? So the LMAA is the London Maritime Arbitrators Association. Mm-hmm. And it is not a, an institution. It is an association of ah. arbitrators. Okay. It was founded uh, just over 60 years ago in 1960. Um, at, I believe, a, a meeting at the Baltic Exchange where charter parties are, are brokered. And it was founded in order that arbitrators who were already handling uh, maritime disputes in London would um, coordinate their activities and also um, eventually agree upon rules for the procedure in maritime arbitrations, which they would be able to to share. And so the LMAA terms on which LMAA arbitrators accept appointments are generally used in LMAA arbitrations, which are ad hoc arbitrations. LMAA arbitration is by far the most popular form of arbitration in shipping disputes. And it's estimated that in uh, 2020, some 1,700 arbitrations were commenced under the LMAA terms and under its intermediate and small claims procedures. Those numbers are far in excess 
of those of um, any uh, institution in London or indeed elsewhere for arbitrations of any kind. Wait, James, are you saying that ad hoc arbitration is more popular than institutional arbitration in London? Oh, that is most certainly the case. The statistics simply uh, demonstrate that. The LCIA has built up a good caseload and um, it's, it's growing all the time. But the LMAA is still way ahead in terms of case numbers. Um, and of course, there are other ad hoc arbitrations outside of maritime, which are much more difficult to actually collate. But of course, ad hoc arbitrations do turn up in the institutions from time to time because the institutions are called upon as appointing authorities mm-hmm. or to, to deal with fund holding, for example. And so the LCIA, for example, um, has usually had 30, 40, 50 ad hoc arbitrations a year, which will just be the tip of an iceberg um, in non-maritime commercial arbitrations in London. Are we, when you say that there are ad hoc arbitrations that are handled by, not handled by, but where institutions, you know, can can um, also have a role to play in ad hoc arbitration. Um, so you mentioned as appointing authorities or, um, you know, looking after funds. Do we call those hybrid arbitrations or do they still remain ad hoc arbitration? And my question is also a general question, which I think would be helpful for our listeners. If you could maybe give us an exact, you know, a, just a definition of how you would define the difference between ad hoc and institutional, because all of this can get a little bit confusing. It is confusing. And of course, there is other language that is used as well, which is administered and non-administered. I think the distinction really comes down to the rules that are used and um, who it is who supervises the use of those rules. So in a pure ad hoc arbitration, it is the arbitrators who are in charge of the process. It is to the arbitrators themselves that you go um, in relation to the, the costs of the arbitration. Uh, it is the parties and the arbitrators who amongst themselves will sort out the arrangements for the hearings and so on. In an institutional arbitration, the arbitration will be conducted under the institution's own rules and there will generally be a board or a court which will supervise the arbitration in the sense that it will be the board or court that will be turned to uh, for any uh, difficulties with um, challenges to arbitrators, for example. And it is the secretariat which will arrange advance payments for fees and such like. In an ad hoc arbitration in London, um, parties would have to turn to the court generally where they have any difficulties. But that is one reason why in ad hoc arbitrations, and this is well provided for, for example, in ad hoc arbitrations under the answer trial rule, 
that parties will generally nominate an appointing authority to deal with issues that might arise uh, in relation to appointments or challenges to arbitrators. But those, those arbitrations in which an institution gets involved for those specific purposes remain ad hoc arbitrations. They are simply ad hoc arbitrations in which uh, recourse is had at some stage to an institution for a particular purpose. So I wouldn't call them hybrid because that suggests that somehow the supervision of the, the procedure is, is being delegated in some way to the institution, which doesn't happen. Ad hoc plus plus? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, of course, <laughs> that, that might uh, confuse issues further, I think. That's true. That's true. I think, I think it's important to understand that ad hoc arbitration um, every now and again will require the assistance of an institution. But of course, it, it need not be an institution, in fact. Um, there are other bodies that can assist, for example, with uh, fund holding in LMAA arbitrations. Um, it's, it's not unusual for uh, security for claims, including security for, for costs, um, to be held in escrow accounts uh, between solicitors. So the, the lawyers themselves, in effect, deal with uh, fund holding in that sense. That's that's a really important, I think, distinction because we we often get confused between these two. And and I was I was um, uh, I was being a bit you know provocative to to see if we could call it hybrid or ad hoc plus plus because I've heard these expressions um, you know uh, in in the community when people say oh well, it's ad hoc but really an institution can help or it's a la carte uh, you know the institution can take a step back and it's not really institutional and then you let you know to to, to understand whether it's ad hoc or not ad hoc. Uh, so that's very helpful. I will ask you a practical question. I have a contract on my desk right now, hypothetical, but let's, let's pretend it's true. Um, and it says um, any dispute between the parties shall be resolved uh, by arbitration in London. Arbitration in, in, in London, that's all it says. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. What is your view on this? Shall we change the clause and make it look a little bit more, um, maybe add a reference to an institution or an association? Shall we add um, some reference to an appointing authority? I mean, tell me, tell me, what do you think about this? Well, arbitration in London is perfectly adequate as an arbitration clause. And I sometimes have the impression that a great deal of fuss is made about the need to negotiate arbitration clauses in great detail. Of course, those three words are unlikely to be ideal in any contract. It is a good idea to uh, add some more detail. But what one shouldn't be scared of, it seems to me, is um, allowing for the possibility that the arbitration will be ad hoc which certainly the three words arbitration in London um, would, would, would head the parties towards because there is no institution identified. And I think there's um, a, a great mistake made in a lot of education about arbitration that is currently so visible in the international arbitration community 
um, the assumption that institutional arbitration is better. That's not the general view amongst the users of arbitration in London. In London, there is a diverse offering, institutional, trade association, ad hoc. They will suit different parties in different situations. And it is absolutely not the case that the institutions will always be the best option. And in that sense, London is quite different from, for example, Singapore, where the Chief Justice and Darish Menon has actually gone to the lengths of saying that institutions have a duty to shape the future of arbitration. For London practitioners, that's a horrific prospect because we need to maintain our diverse ecosystem and institutions have as much to learn from practices in ad hoc arbitration, which is flexible, nimble, adapting quickly to change, just as ad hoc practitioners have things to learn from the institutions. And if, if you would allow me just to um, um, emphasize this point for a minute, because Gary Bourne, in his textbook on international commercial arbitration, um, has a rather dismissive sentence about ad hoc arbitration, if I may just please quote that. Um, by the way, he, he slightly modified it in, in the new edition by, by adding a, a couple of qualifying adverbs, which I was quite pleased to see. But he has said, although there is room for debate, and that actually is new in the new edition, it wasn't there before, there was no room for debate in the previous edition. He <laughs> says, um, most international practitioners, which I find interesting because uh, it's not lawyers who are the parties to arbitration clauses, it's their clients. Anyway, most international practitioners fairly decisively, the tradition didn't have the fairly, so this is some advance, fairly decisively prefer the more structured, predictable character of institutional arbitration and the benefits of institutional rules and appointment mechanisms, at least in the absence of unusual circumstances, arguing for an ad hoc approach. Well, that is wrong. I hope I'm allowed to say that Gary Bourne is wrong. Oh, of course, you're allowed to say anything you want. <laughs> you. you may need to provide a, a, a trigger warning at the beginning, perhaps, in case any international arbitration lawyers are upset by some of the language that I have used. But the point here is that in London, it is absolutely not the case that it is unusual for parties to opt for an ad hoc approach. It is extremely usual. And one of the reasons is actually that if you go for arbitration in London under the Arbitration Act, and you go to an arbitrator, if it was a shipping case, that arbitrator would accept the appointment on the LMAA terms. The LMAA terms provide a considerable amount of uh, structure and predictability. The very elements 
But Gary Bourne seems to imagine you don't have in ad hoc. So I, I, th I think there's also a perception problem here, um, if I may. And I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's um, justified and you're going to tell me if it's justified or not. I think you, you spoke about it earlier as well. Is you, you spoke about trade associations and the LMAA, which are very, very popular for ad hoc arbitrations in particular. Would you have facts, figures about how much of the percentage of those can we say sector specific arbitration in the maritime industry or in trader, um, you know, the other uh, trade associations that you mentioned, and please, could you also refer to them? Um, so we can, if we can tell our, our, our listeners about them, uh, represent um, in, in the, you know, in the share of arbitration, whether institutional or ad hoc in London. So yes. Um, as far as London is concerned, um, you have the two major institutions, the LCA and the ICC. And of course, the ICC reports quite regularly that London is one of its most popular seats. It usually floats somewhere between first place and fourth place annually. Mm. Um, but the, the number of arbitrations seated in London in ICC arbitrations um, hasn't generally exceeded around 100 by, by very much over the years. Um, the, the LCA has seen, um, as I mentioned before, uh, a, a nice increase in its caseload over the years. And uh, the majority of its, uh, the overwhelming majority of its arbitrations are seated in, in London. Um, the LCA in uh, 2020 had 537. Um, no, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, excuse me, just a minute. I'm just checking the figure. Okay. 444 cases, okay. 537 appointments of arbitrators, which is something I also wanted to, to mention. Um, the LMAA had, according to its calculations, based on returns from its members, so there could be other LMA arbitrations conducted by non-members. Uh, 1,775 cases in, in 2020. Now, you've mentioned the trade association. The biggest one, perhaps, is GAFTA, the Grain and Feed Trade Association, which right. is, I think it's about 140 years old now. Um, it's actually uh, an amalgamation and... Um, a, a modern form of older trade association. And it um, deals with the, the majority of uh, contracts and disputes under those contracts in the, um, well, in the grain and, and feed trades uh, uh, globally. Now, its um, numbers of cases depend on what is happening in those markets, which is pretty obvious. The same obviously goes for uh, other uh, institutions, but the trade associations are particularly affected by what's happening in their own trades. So the numbers fluctuate. Um, but each year, GAFTA will have a few hundred arbitrations submitted to it. Um, that number can fluctuate from you know, 200 to, to 900. It depends what's, what's, what's happening. If you add all of those together, if you look at the trade associations, and the LMAA, 
and, and treat those as non-institutional arbitration in general. Yeah. And then if you add in non-maritime ad hoc arbitration, which as I've said is difficult to quantify, um, but there must be a few hundred such cases altogether. If those submitted to the LCA for fund building or whatever are just the tip of an iceberg, then what you're really looking at is something like um, between uh, 15 and 20% of the international commercial arbitration seated in London will be institutional. The rest are outside the institution. It's something like that. I, I have a question to go back to that quote from Gary Bourne, which is about the predictability, which I think is one of the major attacks, I think you've called it, on ad hoc arbitration, which is you hear it from clients and fellow colleagues that it's just so unpredictable, we don't know what's going to happen when it's when it actually proceeds to an arbitration. Do you think the um, very specific nature of these trade organizations and maybe repeat players within the arbitration process, specifically when within GAFTA or LMAA, contributes to more predictability in, in a sense where you would, you would know how the arbitration would work a bit more since it has such a wealth of um, you know, resources and cases before it to kind of contribute to it, whereas somebody in an IP dispute going to an ad hoc arbitration might have a fear of less predictability? No, I think that's an extremely good point. Yes, uh, I think that's right. But um, also there's another important element here, um, which is that one of the, the reasons for the very high numbers of arbitrations in LMAA or, or GAFTA is that they're dealing with um, standard form contracts uh, in transactions. And um, there is predictability in those contracts um, that the parties are, are looking for um, a, a decision on the interpretation of wording in a, a well-used and they had thought until this dispute arose predictable contract. Um, and that's something that's very important to, to understand as well. Um, there's quite a, a prevalent view, which I find quite difficult to persuade parties uh, or arbitration lawyers to, uh, to re-evaluate, if you like, um, that international arbitration um, is, is all about the, the, the coming together of different uh, legal cultures um, and of... Um, comparative law. Um, indeed, uh, Joshua Carton wrote a recent article which suggested that international arbitration was comparative law in action. Now, this is absolutely not the case in arbitrations arising from international commerce, that is from the buying and selling and transportation of goods across borders. What the parties want there is predictability, as you've said. And they've managed to obtain that over the years, over the centuries, by putting together standard form contracts and submitting those contracts for decision very often under English law in London um, and very often by arbitrators um, 
in a particular network who have enormous familiarity with the contracts in issue, whether that's through a trade association or whether it's through an association of arbitrators such as the LMAA. And just bearing in mind the figures that I, I just put to Sadia, um, I think it would be fair to say that the majority of users of international commercial arbitration aren't interested in comparative law. They aren't interested in um, the kind of unpredictability that comes from having an internationally composed tribunal coming to the questions with all sorts of different ideas. They want, very often, English law, London seat, and rules which have been honed over decades to suit the arbitrations that they are going for. But I would, uh, so here is a very interesting point that you are uh, speaking about, is about the nomination of the arbitrators, right? Um, but wouldn't that be the same in institutional arbitration? I mean, the parties have a right to appoint their own arbitrators unless they disagree um, or they don't, then the institution would, would weigh in in that. I'm, I'm simplifying, but that would be the majority of the, you know, the rules would, would provide that. Um, here you're saying that because of the specific um, type of disputes, uh, the parties would like to appoint a specific category of, of arbitrators. Um, but that's also why they refer probably to the LMAA as an association and uh, probably to a specific appointing authority uh, to get a list of, of arbitrators. Uh, how is that, you know, a, an argument more in favor of ad hoc versus institutional, the appointment of the tribunal? Well, that's an interesting question. At the outset, I was saying that one reason to come to London is the diversity of offerings. And the institutions uh, play an important role, uh, particularly as appointing authorities. And the mm -hmm. default, or as we used to call it in my day at the LCA, the primary position under the LCA rules is that it's the LCA court that selects and appoints the arbitrators. One reason that parties, including in shipping disputes, would go to the LCIA is because they would like the LCA to make the appointment of a sole arbitrator. Under the English Arbitration Act, the default appointing authority, if you like, is the court. Mm. Now, um, sometimes it makes good appointments. Sometimes it will refer the appointment to an institution such as the LCIA. But um, having the LCA make the appointment in the first place um, can lend some reassurance, particularly for parties who aren't so familiar with the setup in London, aren't so familiar, for example, with the LMAA. Similarly, in some international trade, in uh, the, the grain trade or indeed in rice, for example, um, parties that aren't themselves involved or uh, aren't themselves members of GAFTA may prefer a neutral organization like the LCA to, to make the appointment. Um, even if the LCA then makes an appointment of a GAFTA arbitrator or an LMA arbitrator, um, 
the, the, the parties may have confidence in it as a neutral organization. Um, and that's a safe option for, for them. When it comes to parties who are uh, familiar with the uh, dispute mechanism under their standard contracts and are familiar with the LMAA or, or after arbitrators, it, it makes good sense for, for them um, to simply make their appointments from lists that they, that they already know. And there's a strong sense in those communities that the system, if you like, benefits from the deep experience of the arbitrators who are most frequently appointed experience which comes from the fact that they receive so many appointments and the LMAA full members are full-time professional independent arbitrators. They do not um, have other activities which would conflict with their practice as arbitrators. They are not in private practice as lawyers. If they were at the bar, they have to give up um, doing council work. Um, it is highly unusual in LMA arbitrations for partners in law firms to be appointed as arbitrators. But any law firm partner who wanted to become an LMA arbitrator would have to retire from practice. So you have um, a, a group of arbitrators who are dedicated to uh, the resolution of disputes of this kind. And that's an attractive proposition for commercial parties who themselves are spending all their time in those trades. When they fall outside of their standard contracts or whatever, when they become involved in a joint venture, um, when they um, become involved in some uh, restructuring, um, when there's a shareholders dispute or something like that, then they may turn to arbitrators from outside um, that particular group. But they may still submit their arbitration to the LMAA terms, they may still want an ad hoc arbitration. Right. All these possibilities. Right. So no double hatting and LMAA. You're saying more predictability of the rules, uh, very specific um, and appealing for users in a specific trade and a majority of um, the case load in London uh, for this particular type of disputes, um, at least. Well, that's, I mean, very insightful. And thank you so much, James. And I'm sorry, we're going to have to wrap up because uh, we're, uh, we're approaching the end of the segment. So maybe a last concluding term. I, I, I wanted to, uh, of course, mention, um, because I, I, I read your article on your, um, on your talk uh, in Rio in 2020, which was entitled Ad Hoc Arbitration and Its Enemies. And you also used the terms... Um, I think uh, superiority and entitlement of institutional arbitration. So maybe some concluding remarks on, on the choice of words here. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yes, um, my 
article was a little bit combative. Um, but I think that when uh, whole sections of a community find themselves excluded, uh, they tend to be a bit combative. And much of the language that is used about international arbitration has very often tended to exclude um, ad hoc arbitration. And um, if I may just give a, a more recent example of that, um, there was the ICA Cross-Institutional Task Force on Gender Diversity in arbitral appointments. Now, gender diversity in arbitral appointments is hugely important. But what right, if you like, do the institutions have to be the thought leaders, as they appear to purport to be, in, in this particular area? Extraordinarily, that report doesn't mention ad hoc arbitration. I did a word search and ad hoc turned up in relation to um, ad hoc committees for challenges in uh, ICSID arbitration, but ad hoc arbitration itself didn't get a mention. And, and furthermore, non-lawyer arbitrators of the kind who are commonly appointed in ad hoc arbitrations were non-persons in the report. But again, they, they didn't exist. So there is, if you like, a sort of uh, institutional arbitration um, assumption whenever international arbitration is being talked about. I, I feel quite strongly that ad hoc needs to fight back. And one reason it needs to fight back is that diversity of offerings in international arbitration is so important. And as I said in my paper, harmonization should be resisted. Very strong concluding words. I think we could speak about this for hours more because there's a lot of material in what you just said, but we'll have to stop here, James. We're going to get comments from um, our, our listeners and we will definitely pass those on uh, to you. But thank you so much uh, for, uh, for being with us today. I will refer you now at Mr. Adoc, if that's okay. Well, <laughs> I'm afraid I would have to differ. Because <laughs> I'm available uh, for appointments in institutional education. And indeed, Mr. Ad hoc plus plus. And indeed, I've got a... I've got a lot of uh, respect for institutional arbitration. No, my, my plea is for, is for diversity and inclusivity. <laughs> now, of course, and we should also mention, of course, James used to work at the LCIA and... Um... And of course, but I was just I was just making a joke here. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, thank you so much, James. Yes, thank you very much, James. And, thank you. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Thank you Bye. very much. So for now, no beer, no champagne. Still happy fun time, though, and it's one that has been suggested by Jan, our editor and producer, and I'm going to read what he suggested. He wrote this in our internal text thread. My friend has recently gone from a traditional bank to a tech crypto company. He said they don't have business cards, but what they do instead is that they scan each other's QR codes in the LinkedIn app to connect. 
And he loved how different this is from the law banking world where one would look like a weirdo trying to awkwardly offer to scan someone's QR code. But the tech guys love it. So the question is, has COVID killed business cards? Will, what else has COVID killed in the networking future? And this is so good because, Brian, you have one of those QR codes on your business card. I do. And it's fantastic. And I, I was always the person being like, this QR stuff, what, what does it mean? And it is actually counterintuitive to have a QR code with the business card. But what it does is obviously you can give someone the business card. But if they just place their phone over the yeah. QR code, it directly links to your LinkedIn and, any, and your contact information is all uploaded directly into that person's phone and it can be saved in a click um which is great we were schmoozing last week Sada. did you have your business cards with you for the, the you know that's lecture? such an interesting interesting thing that you asked me that because just before i went i was like oh my gosh i think i need some business cards i'd forgotten then and so they were like rotting in some kind of bag that i hadn't used for so long so they were like a bit black and court you know they just, <laughs> i was like should i give this away this is really embarrassing um so i had a few and um and in afterwards, I sent an email uh, to my team saying, hey, I need I need to order more business cards. And so you guys can see, I just have a fresh pack here oh, in my hand, which is oh, nice. interesting. Uh, but you know what? I was, yeah, but when I gave my cards away, I realized that um, a lot of people didn't have that though, them anymore. And, uh, and in fact, uh, following up after the conference of the people I didn't know uh, was uh, through LinkedIn, interestingly. A lot of the people just look at me on LinkedIn. So. Same, same here. I, 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 yeah. I forgot my business cards, not on purpose, but partly because I was out of practice. And even so, mine, they were printed, you know, years before the pandemic. I probably have a US phone number on them and it, they're not updated anymore. But what I ended up doing a couple of times afterwards talking to people was just, you know, we, we, we both, after we agreed that we should connect, we looked at each other's name tags that were printed and then searched slowly and manually for each other's names on LinkedIn. And then we connected that way, which is, you know, the same thing as the QR code is just a much more inefficient approach. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, if you think about it, because when you, usually when you get a business card, you send someone an email, it's the most natural thing. And unless you have an eighties Rolodex, you're only relying on your email cache to be able to keep in touch with these people, unless you directly go into LinkedIn and make all these like extra connections. But if you do have a QR code that links to your phone number, which maybe the mobile number can stay the same, or if you change jobs, your LinkedIn will stay the same. So it is the, the, a fire safe way of getting, staying in touch with the people that you've met, that, that you've wanted, that you want to stay in touch with. I like, but you can yeah. always use it as an excuse, Joel, if you don't bring your business card. Sorry, we're going away from that in order to, uh, for COVID friendly <laughs> reasons. <laughs> I mean, which is also, we don't have to do that whole song and dance now, but it, does that really make a difference from a COVID perspective? Haven't we all agreed that it's an airborne disease and that yeah. handing over business card yeah. is not going to give anyone COVID? <laughs> I guess it's more uh, a general comfort yeah. question. <laughs> also, you're... Um killing a lot of trees by printing those cards do we really need to do that is uh, a fair question right so yeah you, it would be good to just show your phone and tell people just scan me and, and you immediately get everyone's you know information there 
like I think, you know, I think exactly I'm, like you suggested, Brian. Yeah. yeah, I'm pro QR code now. I think the the problem with the LinkedIn though is the same problem as with everything else in in our modern times that I am not that comfortable having everything tied to a private company. Like I would love to have my own <laughs> Rolodex with my notes, but now LinkedIn owns my my network and my interactions with them the same way Spotify owns my music and the mm. New York Times cooking app has all my recipes. And if they were to like do what they want with that, I'd be screwed. You know what I find really difficult is having it organized in any single way. Um, I guess with the Rolodex, it's the way to keep it organized, but you'd be like, Oh, don't I know someone in New York who deals with litigation? Yeah. And, and you're just like, yeah. Ooh, how do I find this? No idea. I guess you should start doing it by jurisdiction and like a physical Rolodex. Well, that's the thing. In LinkedIn, in LinkedIn you could do that. You could search by, um, you know, by affiliation, by jurisdiction, mm-hmm. by in your context. If you're like, I'm sure I have this person in my contact. In your 5,624 <laughs> contacts, right. out of which you know just 10%. <laughs> according to me because i accept everyone <laughs> what, I how did it a... feel um for you guys to be in person networking it was it was interesting i think because during the lecture we all kept our uh, face masks on mm. and then after i was like how are we gonna you know do traditional networking this way but because food and drinks were served i think it all immediately became accepted that everyone just took that off and I think that contributed yeah. to the like oh, oh really? it's so nice to be talking to other people feeling because we had been sitting down for an hour and a half with our masks on and then it was just like you know letting our hair down but taking our masks off and talking to people it was yeah. really interesting yeah I agree and first when you meet people with your mask you're you never like touch them you're just like you know kind of awkward like should we shake hands should we bump mm-hmm. you know um, our, 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 our arms together, or what should we do? And then when you start drinking, I mean, it's not even the drinks in itself. It's just like when you get the mask off, sorry, then everyone's like, again, hugging. And, and when you say bye, you're like, hey, bye. And it's so funny because it's just like, well, when you started, you didn't want to touch me. And all of a sudden, it's difficult to be the person who's like elbow bumping and being yeah. like, no, I don't feel comfortable here. Everyone's shaking hands. Um, oh, okay. In Dubai, it's you're, you know, right. I, I went to a, a dinner of 15 people yesterday and it was shaking hands all around and then sharing a charcuterie platter with your hands. And I was like, this is not what I'm used to. <laughs> yes. But for you sure. feel like kind of obligated not to be the, the whiny one. Yeah. 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 No, of course. Of course. Um, I, I'm actually going at normally if things go as planned. I'm supposed to go to Vienna in uh, two days to attend the Ancelor Working Group 3. Um, and so I'll let you know how that plays out because I just got a notification that uh, people in Austria are all in lockdown who are the people mm-hmm. who are not Vaccine, vaccinated. Right, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how interactions are um, in that in that context. Let's see. Let's see. But I would say definitely networking post-COVID has changed. I think also people like I really wanted to go to this event, Jewel. I'm sure it's the case for you. Like there's been a lot of other events that were planned in London. And this one I really wanted to go. And that was the Arnold Porter uh, one organized with the Louder Pack Center, Professor Code. Um, not even, you know, I don't think remotely connected to international arbitration, but it was a discussion on international law and how it was applied by uh, the Biden administration. Um, 
and 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 I do think that I'm I'm choosing my events more carefully now. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just because it matters, right? Uh, where yeah. you go and who you meet. Yeah. But I think I, we can probably dispense with business cards, but the actual face-to-face meeting, the 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 elbow touching and the standing next to each other with a drink in your hand, it's indispensable. And that's the, that was my it's gonna main. It's going to come back. Okay, yeah, because that was it was just such a rush. I was talking to several people the day afterwards who were there, and we all said the same. And you know, it's not just the lecture and attending it; it's just standing in a group of people and talking informally like the podcast like with when we what we wanted to do with the podcast in the first place just some human to human interaction that makes this business mm-hmm. much more human and you can't do that the same way over zoom it, it just no. is fundamentally There's no different. spontaneity yeah exactly which, which is something that jan also brought up which is that they are um developing or have developed a networking tinder where you can swipe left or right based off who if you want to um, network with them on their face, based on their face, well, based on the their name, profile, I guess. Oh, are their affiliation? Yeah. yeah, that could work as a non-dating app, <laughs> so not Tinder <laughs> app. If there was no pictures involved, I have to confess, right? Because otherwise, people are like the first impression of people. You're swiping right or left based on probably their appearance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even if it was their profile, I'm sure it would get very convoluted in people's intentions for using that app. <laughs> But I think what what Joel you're saying is that like it it's irreplaceable that even if even if this is something in the new COVID times that we're going to be able to like network on a completely random you know association based based on an algorithm of people who might be inter- interested in similar things, it's not going to be the same. You won't have the motivation to follow up on someone. That spontaneous like first interaction is not going to motivate any follow ups, and I think it's just going to be. Um, terrible you know what i think is actually is um is these lunches have you guys been seeing these pictures on i think it's it's only for women only for women yeah no boys allowed oh yeah but it's a great i think a great alternative yeah it's smaller groups so it's a bit more covid friendly um but people getting paired up yeah Yeah. what's it called what's the lunch something lunch Yes, I should know this. The only reason why it's not in my mind right now is because I haven't signed up for it, but I will. It's a great initiative and I will sign up for it. Yeah. It's international, right? I've seen it in a lot of places. Yeah, it's international. Yeah, 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 it's international. That's a great idea. Great Great initiative. It is. I I missed that. I want to do something similar now. It's it's the dynamic aspect to wrap this up and and to like tie it to technology. I think the algorithm-driven, like optimized networking will also always be inferior to the like randomized talking to someone you didn't expect or for that matter talking about a lot of things that have nothing to do with your work just like connecting over art or politics or travel or whatever it may be that isn't work that kind of like unexpected dynamic interaction with semi strangers cannot replace it's a little bit like dating though joel i mean you know you would say that for Mm -hmm. like oh it's so much better to meet people in real life like what like we used to do before in restaurants and pubs and so on the truth is there's no new kids uh i mean actually even you know some uh, people of our generation uh now it's it's totally normal to meet people online Mm -hmm. but you still have to meet in person at some point and test the chemistry that you can't experience that's true that's true that's true. Well, it's it's the same in the professional setting, I think. There are a lot of people that I were was exchanging with uh, only online through the entire... Actually, there are some clients of mine. I haven't even seen them in real life yet. And it's been a year and a half that I've been working with them. 
and we're finally going to see each other soon. Yeah. And that is where I am now. Let me tell you, Sadia, it is, it changes the game. You don't know that your client is six foot five and used to be a professional basketball player. You don't know (laughs) these things and they don't come up because it's log in, log out. Right. And it's literally to like a really long time that I've known this client and have, have a somewhat, but like the, the interactions have completely changed. And I think it's, you'll see when you go, it's going to be a totally different dynamic and relationship. Love this. A little bit of hope to end this episode on. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Looking forward to the changes, the new era. New era. All right, guys. I don't know if you heard the call to prayer in the background of the microphone. Oh, no, um, I didn't. Oh, that would have been cool, (laughs) actually. I guess this microphone's too good. But I think that's uh, my sign to sign off. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you for joining us from Dubai. Thank you, guys. Talk to you guys soon. Yes, yes. And enjoy Vienna, Sadia, if we don't talk until you go. Yes. Well, do I'll keep you posted. Take care, guys. <laughs> All right, bye, guys.